and we're up to verse 15. Hear the inerrant word of God. Acts 1, beginning at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this portion of your word, which you have given to build us up and to challenge us and to encourage us, and I pray that it would do its lively work within our hearts by the working of your Spirit. Anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This week I'd like to look at some of the preparations that God was doing in the lives of his disciples to prepare them for Pentecost. And then next week, Lord willing, I'd like to look at the significance of the choosing of Matthias, that he really was an apostle, contrary to what many people believe. Uh, the significance of the 12 and the 120 and how God was developing a foundation upon which the church would be built. Remember Ephesians 2 says that uh, at Pentecost, God made a foundation and the church was being built on it. Um, and uh, the apostle Paul was the only one really who was an apostle born out of due time. Uh, he called himself the last of the apostles. In fact, I'd like to go ahead and read that uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, where he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so Paul was saying there was a revelational foundation that was laid in the first century. It started with Christ, and then later there were the apostles and the prophets which formed this foundation, and the church was being built up uh, on top of that. And the number of verses that Luke records uh, in Acts chapter 1 that symbolically represent this foundation being laid uh, makes me believe this is a pretty significant theology that we need to talk about. So I want to devote a whole sermon to that next week. But today I want to look at the preparations that God was making for Pentecost. And I've worded it that way 
preparations God was making so that we could avoid the legalism that many, many people have fallen into. And I know some of you have mentioned to me that you have been tempted by that in the past. When I was a teenager, I was tempted by this uh, sort of um, legalism. And so the beginning of this, we're going to deal with six points later on, but this introduction is going to be a long introduction. It's kind of a warning. Um, Classical Pentecostalism says that before you can be baptized in the Spirit, you have to meet certain conditions. And those vary from church to church, but they're pretty standard uniform. Uh, Almost every book, if not every book I've read uh, by Pentecostalist teachers, say that in addition to saving faith and repentance, you have to have uh, a greater faith and you have to have a number of conditions, including purity of heart. And in order to aid people in this, they have what they call tarrying meetings, where you wait, you tarry, you wait and pray for the Spirit. And I've been to quite a few of those meetings, and they are quite something uh, to behold. (laughs) They are supercharged with emotion, and many of them are highly manipulative as these leaders are trying to get people through into baptism of the Spirit and speaking in tongues. And if you haven't arrived yet, they'll encourage you to have more faith, uh, to pray more fervently and intently, to agonize, to uh, cleanse your heart and make yourself more fully clean because after all, they say, the Spirit is holy. He's a holy spirit and he's not going to indwell an impure vessel. And so we've got to make ourselves pure and holy. And I'm thinking to myself when they were telling me this, now wait a shake, if we don't have the Spirit yet, how can we make ourselves a holy vessel? Is this self-reformation? But anyway... uh, Those who come to the tarrying meeting strive for better obedience, more holiness of heart, and they strive in anguish. I mean, these are sincere brothers in the Lord who really want to please the Lord to be more completely yielded in mind and will and emotions and and conscience and body uh, to what the Lord is doing. And after days of sleep loss and fasting and emotional anxiety and cries and emotionally charged atmosphere and the prodding of the leader, very unsurprisingly, many of these people start babbling incoherently, you know? And everybody says, praise the Lord, you know? They've been baptized by the Spirit. Finally, you know, these guys have been so slow. And the poor blokes that haven't gotten it yet, they have to tarry and they have to wait some more. And uh, they say, after all, it took 10 days before these disciples got baptized in the Spirit in Acts 1. So don't be surprised if it takes you 10 days or longer, you know, of waiting in these tarrying meetings. One Pentecostal writer said of these slowpokes, they have had wonderful experiences and surrender after surrender has been made, but because they have not come all the way and made the yieldedness complete, they have not seen the fullness of the blessing. And so they try to be more yielded. How do I be more yielded? And they put pride on the altar and sin and everything that they can think of, and they weep. And some of these preachers, after a while, get kind of tired, and they wonder, how do these guys get through? And so some of my preacher friends here in town have said, well, what they've encouraged these guys to do is just make your lips move, and maybe the Spirit will take over. Uh, And one of the pastors said, well, I just get these guys to say some phrases like, I should have bought a Hyundai, should have bought a Hyundai, should have bought a Hyundai over and over. And again, not surprisingly, people begin to get confused in their tongues and they start speaking in that version of tongues uh, that um, is being promoted. And these are brothers in the Lord. They believe that they are fulfilling the mandate in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1 where he commands them to wait. And in the King James, it's tarry. That's why they call them tarrying meetings. To wait in Jerusalem until you have been... Uh, uh, you know, the promise of the Spirit comes upon them. And so they're, they're, they're trying to yield. 
But as Bruner said in his excellent uh, book that critiques this theology, he says the possibility of living a yielded, pure, and holy life in close fellowship with God even prior to the full coming of the Spirit is unexplained. And yet it is implicit in the Pentecostal conditions. How it is possible for the Christian to live this kind of a life before he enjoys the full gift of the Spirit awaits an entirely comprehensible answer. Now, to those of you who have been tempted by this, and I know some of you have been tempted in the past by this, I want you to know that it is legalism. And it does not even remotely resemble the kind of freedom and liberty and faith that you find in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Uh, Galatians 3 makes clear, we receive the Spirit by faith and not by the works of the flesh. And so, in total contrast to what I've described, in this chapter here, you don't find the kind of chaos and emotionally explosive atmosphere that is so characteristic of the tarrying meetings. Instead, in chapter 1, you find an orderly meeting with no emotion whatsoever that's described. You can't find any emotion in chapter 1. Uh, instead of... Um, uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, chaos you find in verses 15 through 26, it just sort of seems like an ordinary business meeting, doesn't it? Uh, you don't find everybody talking at the same time. Instead, you find one person talking at a time. In this case, it was Peter, the leader, who was talking to the people. Instead of works, you find faith. In fact, once Pentecost has come, Peter indicates that no one needs to wait again. Look at, look at it with me. Chapter 2, verses 38 39. He's talking to unbelievers who want to be saved. Then Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So that's talking about conversion. What happens as a result of conversion? He says, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now there have been many, many sermons uh, in American history that have been preached on these first two chapters of Acts that are promoting revivalism rather than revival. And there is a big difference between the two. Revivalism is the fleshly attempts to get near to God through our strivings, our agonizings, our emotional maneuverings. And emotionalism is an essential component of revivalism. It is always present in revivalism. Now, here's one of the scary things to think about. Almost every religion in the world has sex or has branches of that religion that use identical techniques to arouse the euphoria that you find in revivalism. Almost identical techniques. You can find it in Islam. You can find it in many religions. And there are books that outline exactly the techniques to use to get people to this point of what they think of as, you know, Various, it's not always just baptism of the Spirit. There's other forms of revivalism that are out there. Uh, the kind of music, how to rouse people's emotions, the kind of words to use, how to create an atmosphere that will produce decisions. And so right off from the beginning, I want to say that I want nothing of revivalism. I want nothing of its manipulation of people. Now, don't get me wrong. I desire just as much as anybody that the Spirit would be poured out in greater fullness upon our congregation like He was in Acts 2 and again upon the same people in Acts chapter 4 and other places in the book of Acts. And so I desire that, but I realize I cannot even predict revival, let alone bring about revival. 
Now, revivalism, I don't think I could even bring about revivalism. I don't have the personality. It really does take a unique personality to do it. But man can bring about revivalism. He cannot bring about revival. These disciples, by praying, could not speed up this Pentecost by one day. It had to come on the 50th day. Didn't matter how much they agonized, didn't matter what they do, it was going to come when God sovereignly said it was going to come. They could not manipulate God or change the timing. There was nothing to be anxious about. God was sovereign. He gave the revival. And I really don't want more of what Phil Kaiser can produce. I want more of what God can produce and less of our flesh. I want more of God's power and less that can be attributed to my own ingenuity. Okay, this is what we should be desiring. Lord, have your sovereign sway in our lives. Have your way in our lives rather than stirring up what we desire. Jesus said that the spirit is like a wind. You can't predict it. You can't control it. It comes and goes wherever it wills. And that's the way the spirit is when he sovereignly brings his uh, 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 movements of revival and reformation in history. And so there's very little that we can do to prepare for revival. And so I think it's a mockery to the Spirit when we say that if you follow the things that Phil outlines in this passage, and there's going to be six things I'm going to outline, if you follow those, the Spirit has to come in revival. No, no, no. You've totally misunderstood if you take uh, these six points. And that's why I've not even put an outline for you. I want you guys to put top across your page, we can't bring revival, okay? These um, things that... That, uh, that we're going to be talking about are indicators of what God himself is doing to prepare for the revival that he has ordained to bring in any given period of history. And so it really is a, 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 an insult to the spirit when we say, we're going to have a revival next week. You know, we're going to schedule one maybe next month and I want you to come to my revival meeting. No, that, that, that's an insult to the Holy Spirit. And I think this is such a needed corrective in the modern church that God is not a commodity that we can broker. Amen. He is the sovereign who has made this universe. He is the one who regenerates. We can't regenerate. He is the one who revives our spirit. He is the one who departs. And many times he departs from us. The Puritans spoke many times of those departures of the, of the spirit to bring us to our senses and to make us so dry we cry out to God as David did uh, to fill us and to uh, quench our thirst. And so our emotions do not produce revival. Our works do not produce revival. Even our waiting does not produce revival. Okay? The humbling thing is, God is the one who stirs up even the means to the ends. And it's very important that we understand that. Now, that does not mean that the six issues we're going to deal with have no relevance to us. They have enormous relevance, and they're very encouraging or convicting, depending on which side of the fence you're on. And, um, and so don't think of this as a formula. Okay, if we go through all of these steps, if we confess our need of God and we pray and we do these different things, then revival will come. Rather, think of this in the reverse. Think, okay, I see that God is stirring some of these things in my heart. I've never had this passion for prayer like I've had before. And God's, it's encouraging my faith that God is at work in me and he's at work in our congregation. That's more what I want to, us to look at. And so let's look at these six preparations that God himself brings to prepare his people for revival. God's first work of preparation is to make his people recognize their need of him. And I think Jesus was doing this all through the past 40 days. And he reminds them again in verses 48, uh, 4 through 8 that without the Spirit, 
they will not be successful as witnesses. They will not be able to accomplish their goals. They need to be empowered from on high. And by going to this upper room, they are praying and they're acknowledging that they're, they have need. That's what prayer is all about. Lord, we are a needy people. And I think we have exactly the same needs that these disciples had. If you think of them before the resurrection of uh, Jesus, but after his death, they were scared to death. They were hidden in a room with the doors locked and probably jumped out of their seats when Christ walked through those doors and saw them. They were fearful before the death of Christ. They did not have the compassion that Jesus had for the multitudes. Lord, please send them away. They're tired, you know. Uh, They don't have the love for their enemies that Christ had. They wanted to call down fire upon uh, two cities and have those cities uh, consumed. They lacked humility because they were arguing with each other as to who was going to be the greatest. And so they needed Pentecost. Uh, They needed the Spirit in their lives. And I think the recognition of the need in their lives began 40 days before After the resurrection, when Jesus met with them, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. They received some of the Spirit in their lives at that point. Uh, You can see uh, some of the the preparatory work in chapter 2, verse 37, when the crowd is cut to its heart and asks, what can we do to be saved? Uh, You can see it in chapter after chapter. On the other hand... I think if there is one church in the book of Revelation that describes the average evangelical church in America, it would be the church of Laodicea, which had wads of money and programs and numbers and prestige, and yet Jesus gives these haunting words to them. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You do not know. I think those are some of the scariest words that could be said to a person. You do not know that you are needy. Here we are. We are desperately needy. We don't even recognize that we are needy. That's a scary place to be in. And that's exactly the place that these disciples, they were believers, they were regenerate, they were children of God, but they did not at the last supper, the last Passover feast with their Lord, recognize how desperately needy they were. Peter says, even if everybody else denies you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same thing. Uh, They were quite self-confident and they did not recognize that they were really miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked apart from Christ's help. And I think none of us truly recognizes our need apart from the prior working of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit has been working, as I said, that recognition for 40 days after Jesus had received the Holy Spirit. Now, they got more of the Spirit at Pentecost. And there were additional things that the Lord gave. He empowered them. But we need to recognize, apart from His working, we're not going to recognize our need. And you can talk and talk till you're blue in the face and you can counsel and counsel till you're blue in the face. Unless the Spirit opens their eyes, it's not going to it's not going to do a thing. Second preparation of God was producing submission to Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus had commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. In verse 12, they submit, despite the fact Jerusalem is one of the most dangerous places in all of Israel for these guys to be right now. They go. Verse 12 says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Very dangerous place to be. It's an uncomfortable place to be, and yet they're willing to submit to Jesus. In fact, next week we're going to be seeing the upper room that they were at was an upper room in the temple. I'll be bringing pictures, Lord willing, of the temple and explain some of the scenario there. But if you look at the last verse in the book of Luke, it says that during the 10 days before Pentecost, they were continually in the temple. Just like Anna. 
She never left the temple, day or night, it says. They were continually in the temple. I'll give you a boatload of scriptures that indicate that, and it's a very significant point as to why they were there. But here's the thing. Jesus is asking them to go to a place where their enemies can see them. In fact, when Pentecost comes and you hear the sound of the Spirit, there's crowds that are instantly around them. They're in a very public place. I don't know what uncomfortable thing you are struggling with, but I can guarantee you that there will be issues that will come up. He calls you to submit, and there will be challenges where you're going to have to submit between Jesus and self-respect, between Jesus and persecution, between Jesus and the praise of other people. And your flesh is going to not want to do the thing that God does because it's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, One of the most discouraging features of the American church that I saw coming in as an outsider when I came from Africa uh, was in Africa, especially the one tribe we were at, they were uh, quite a stubborn people, difficult to work with. But if you could show them anything from the scripture, they instantly turned about face and they were just as strong in following the scripture. They did not pick and choose. When I came to the States, I was shocked with my friends who just willy-nilly would pick and choose what they were going to obey and what they would not want to obey. And you know, I think some of you are this way. You've got a smorgasbord approach to Christianity where if it's comfortable, then you'll submit. Well, that's not submission. We cannot pick and choose what things we will submit to. And let me tell you something. When people in a church will follow the Lord in the smallest details. When the Lord convicts them, they will follow through on that. It's an indication that God's grace is at work in their hearts because the flesh sure won't do that. The flesh resists. It's a proud monster. It loves autonomy. It loves um, to uh, rebel. It loves to call the shots. It does not love to submit. And so when you see the uh, Spirit of God doing this, it's a sure sign that God is powerfully working because the flesh avoids danger shame, humility, inconvenience. In fact, as uh, Pastor Glenn mentioned, it avoids anything that even remotely appears crucifixion, right? That we're called to and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the emotionalism that many people call revival, if you examine it, is anything but revival. It is very fleshly. Anything but revival. Revival starts with a recognition, first of all, of how bad we are, how needy we are of the Savior. Secondly, it's willing to submit the moment God shows us anything in the Word. Thirdly, third preparation that God has is He begins to give an interest in the people of God's for a spiritual unity. Look at verses 13 uh, through 14. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and uh, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, the word with one accord is homothumadon, and it means to be of one heart, of one soul. It's used uh, over and over in the book of Acts in connection with prayer and doctrine and fellowship. What God was doing is he was knitting the hearts of these people together in a profound way. They were no longer asking the question, who's the greatest and vying for the right hand or the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. They lived together in brother as brothers. In fact, the word brother occurs over 60 times in the book of Acts. And this unity is all the more remarkable when you understand what their attitudes were before the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And I've already talked about that some, uh, their, their, their rivalry with each other. Now, James and John wanted to be at the right hand and left hand of Christ. But here, they're present, but you don't see any anxiety on their part when Peter takes the leadership. Now, I've heard people say, we have to be organizationally united before the Spirit will be poured out upon the church. And I don't agree with that. I think that there needs to be a visible unity because Psalm 133 does say the blessing that comes when brethren dwell together in unity. And it says there he commanded the blessing. We want the blessing, right? And it's in the presence of this unity that it comes. But if you examine the context, it's not talking about organizational unity. It's talking about a spiritual unity because already as they are dwelling together, it's because of the oil that comes upon Aaron's head and the dew that comes about Mount Hermon. It's the spirit that stirs up this desire within people. And so it's deeper than the, the, the organizational unity. Um, what the spirit does is he causes his people to repent over ungodly divisions. And ultimately, only he can bring that about. And so we've seen first, God stirs up a deep recognition of our need, willingness to submit to his word, thoroughly a knitting of hearts together in a common cause, a spiritual unity. The fourth way God prepares these people for Pentecost was to stir up their prayer. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his uh, brothers. Now, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem and they spend a great deal of their time in prayer. Now, contrast that with the Gospels. We're not told that they didn't pray during the time of the Gospels, but as many times as it mentions that Jesus prayed alone, early in the morning, late at night, he prayed other times, and almost no mention of their praying. In fact, about the only mention you can find is, teach us to pray, Lord. Uh, they don't know how to pray. And secondly, they fall asleep while he's praying, right? And so there's a huge contrast. Forty days before, I think after Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit, these people have a renewed urge to pray. God is, being, is, is driving them into prayer. And uh, I, I believe that this preparation has preceded every revival that I have read about in the history of the church is that God gives at least a small group of people, two, three sometimes, and sometimes larger groups, an unquenchable desire to pray before the Lord. And I'm excited on this front as well because the Lord seems to have stirred up a prayer movement, the likes of which I have never seen uh, in my ministry, and many people say has not occurred in the history of the world. All over Africa and Asia and in other places, in South America, you can find it. And I'm seeing some of the beginnings of it in parts of the states, and so I'm encouraged. Let me tell you just a little story along these lines. In 1984, God led a man by the name of Ramon Carmona from Cartagena on the coast of, of um, Colombia up to Medellin, and if you understand the differences between Cartagena and Medellin, there's, it's almost like racial prejudice. Uh, there are, there's quite a bit of uh, antipathy between the two regions. And so he had a, a few strikes a, against him. But he believed God was calling him to plant a church in that city. And when he went there, here's a city of 3 million people, and he only finds 4,500 baptized believers, and they're in about 90 churches. So a lot of churches out there, most of them under 100. And he talks to these pastors and he says, is there any way that we can get together and pray? And, 
And the pastors, you know, really suspicious of each other. They've been under a lot of persecution from the Roman Catholic Church. But the Lord begins to move in the hearts of some of these pastors, and they, just as a small core group, begin to pray. And the Lord increases the number of pastors over those three years. And they finally have about 90% of the churches on board where they have joint prayer meetings. And uh, they had their first rally. And that night, things just broke out like uh, crazy in terms of conviction of sin. And... Uh, in the next 10 months, now this has been, Christianity has been in that uh, place, evangelical Christianity, for ages, for a long time, only 4,500 people. In the next 10 months, there were 6,000 people that have become Christians, and it's just skyrocketed after that time. And they had these prayer rallies where they would pray through the night. And then, let's see, what was the date? It was uh, 19... Um, 95, they organized 25 citywide rallies in 25 cities. And uh, it affected politicians. Uh, the, the, uh, the mayor of, uh, of uh, the one city there, he prayed for about six hours confessing the sins of the city and dedicating the city uh, to the Lord. And uh, immediately they began noticing differences like uh, these drug lords being captured. And they were seeing such an impact that the drug lords were assassinating pastors left and right because they saw, I think it was actually Satan behind them, seeing the spiritual background, the power that was, uh, what was causing all of this to happen. And uh, anyway, it's just a very, very exciting story. Now, it might be tempting for us to think hey, if we can only get together people to pray, then we're going to have revival. Well, they had tried to get people together to pray for years. It just seemed like there was nothing. Nothing was going anywhere very fast. And um, I think what we should instead say is that God's Spirit is the one who, when He's going to pour out revival, prepares the means by stirring up people with a spirit of prayer and supplication. I mean, it's hard to get pastors to pray, let alone members to pray. Uh, I think the statistics that I had read 10 years ago, and it's gotten much better since then, but 10 years ago, the average number of minutes that pastors prayed in America was two minutes. That is pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. That's not counting Sunday morning prayers, I think. <laughs> Two minutes a day, that is absolutely pathetic. And it's changed in recent years, and I am, I am uh, somewhat in encouraged. The fifth area in which God prepares a people for Pentecost is Scripture study. Verse 16, has Peter's desire to see the Scriptures followed. Verse 20 shows his study of the Scripture coming out. Verse 22 shows Peter's insistence it be followed. He teaches the Scripture. But I think more to the point, if you look at verse 3, Jesus has been teaching them for 40 days, intensive teaching in the Word. If you look at the last chapter of Luke, uh, you'll see two verses there that indicate they were being immersed in teaching. God had instilled in these people a capacity to be taking in the Word of God. Uh, all day long for 40 days, he instilled a new hunger for the Word. And I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we were uh, being given American history, and the seminary professor was reading us accounts of what happened during the First Great Awakening. 
that God had stirred in the people there such an incredible hunger for the word that when people heard that an evangelist was in town, they instantly dropped their things. And he said, uh, one of the accounts said that there was just uh, dust everywhere flying as there were carts and horses and bicycles and people running to get to this, uh, this evangelist to hear the word. And they would stay there and beg the evangelist not to leave. God had instilled within them an insatiable appetite for the word of God in preparation for uh, this revival uh, that he was going to pour up. Now, we can't stir that up in ourselves. You know, if a person's not interested, if he's bored with the word of God, how do you get him interested? You can't do it with stories and all kinds of, of gimmicks like that. Apart from the spirit himself instilling that desire, it's not going to happen. And so when you see a hunger for the word beginning to arouse within you. When you see some of these other things beginning to arouse within you, you can thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord. I desperately need revival. I need, and our church needs revival. And we're looking to you to increase that appetite. The sixth and the last, last preparation that God brings for revival is to establish leadership who will be able to handle the influx of new people as the revival comes. Now, first of all, he had prepared the 11 in verse 13. Then he prepared and called the 70 uh, uh, disciples of Luke chapter 10, and I believe that they are a part of the core group of 120, and I'll develop that later uh, next week. Then God made further preparations by making every one of those 120 disciples into prophets in the next chapter. And this is a leadership that God is preparing and developing the people for. They're going to be very much needed. And then in verses 15 through 26, God moves Peter to provide a replacement for Judas. All of this was stirring up the needed leadership. Now, next week, I'm going to be pointing out uh, several reasons why I believe that Peter was not running ahead of the will of God like so many people insist in, in their commentaries. Uh, I believe that the 12 were needed. Matthias was needed. And he was following, I believe, the directions uh, of Christ on this. I believe that Matthias was one of the 70 apostles who were sent out to represent the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 10. There weren't just the 12 apostles sent out. Uh, that was the first group. They were the big A apostles. But there were 70 apostles representing Jesus sent out as well. By the way, just as a sneak peek, uh, I believe that the Apostle Paul, see, I think Matthias was one of the 70. He replaces the 12. I believe the Apostle Paul filled the gap of the 70. He, he, he speaks of himself as being the last of the apostles, one born uh, out of due time. But the main point that I want to emphasize here is God has always prepared leadership when he is going to be causing a revival to come forward. And it makes perfect sense. God's a planner. God's a God of organization, a God of order. And if he plans the ends, he's also planning the means toward that ends. And if there's going to be a great influx, God's going to raise up the leadership. Now, here's the point that we need to be in prayer about. If we long for revival and reformation, if we long to see more people coming in, we need to be praying that God would raise up leadership in our congregation, not just here, but in Omaha. And, uh, um, I, you know, I, I think God has been calling me to be a part of the process of the preparation and training of leaders, not just in this country, but in other countries as well. And it would be much more exciting to be a part of the ingathering in Acts chapter 2 
But you know what? Acts chapter 1 is critically important if Acts chapter 2 is going to happen. And so if God enables me in the future to be a part of ingathering and in other places, I'll rejoice uh, with exceeding great joy. But I am quite content and quite happy to be part of the process of preparation. I'm so thankful for Pastor Glenn coming on staff. And you could be praying for us that God would enable us to be used in the raising up of leadership, not just here, but in other places as well. Let me end with six short questions that you can evaluate yourselves with. First, do you recognize your need? If you do not recognize that you are a needy person, a desperately needy person, uh, you're in a, a very scary position indeed. Every one of us needs God's grace, and if we don't recognize it, we don't even have one of the prerequisites toward revival. Now, John Piper... Uh, his common theme is that we need to enjoy God. We need to delight in God. But he encouraged my heart in one of the books uh, that he wrote, and I believe it was Desiring God. Um, uh, Pastor Durham was trying to find the exact quote, and I couldn't get it, but it was outstanding. But anyway, he said, if you don't delight in God, there's still an evidence that God's grace is working in you if you long to be able to delight in God. And he says, even if you don't long for God... There's an evidence of God's grace working in you if you're at least repenting of the fact that you don't long to delight in God. Because why? It is showing that you have an understanding of your need and that's a God-given thing. Only as God's Spirit is working within us do we recognize that neediness. The second question is, are you submitting to what Jesus has called you to right now? Uh, many times... It's not until we take the first baby steps of obedience that God gives more faith and he gives more grace to be able to go further. But what we do is we short-circuit the process. We won't even take the first baby steps because we look at the forest that's ahead of us and we just are overwhelmed. I remember the first time that my dad put a hoe in my hand. He took me to our garden out in Ethiopia and we had to grow all of our vegetables that we ate for the whole year. Anyway, I don't know if I was five or six or seven, somewhere around there. But I don't know, even remember how big the garden was. It looked like acres and acres there. He put a hole in my hand. He says, well, Phil, your task is to hoe the garden. And I just started to cry. I said, I can't do all of that. And he said, Phil, can you do one weed? Can you dig out one weed? Oh, yeah, I can do that. And he says, okay, I want you to just obey me by digging one weed at a time, and you only have to do it for an hour. Well, that was not quite so overwhelming. I was able to dig around there for an hour and dig out quite a few weeds. And I would like to encourage you to think this way. Do not get discouraged when you compare your life to somebody who's mature in the faith and see the whole forest in your life that needs to be cut down and just get overwhelmed and give up. Forget about the whole forest. Dig out one weed at a time. Here's the question. Are you willing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ on the littlest things that he brings to you right now? These are the things you're responsible for. Third question. Do you long for true spiritual unity? By the way, if you are not willing, repent. That's the only thing I can say to you is repent and ask the Lord to give you the grace to obey. And even if you don't want to obey, you do it anyway. You obey anyway. The third question is, do you long for true spiritual unity of the bride? And if not, ask God, please, Lord, give me a love for the brethren, not just a love for the brethren in this congregation, but in Omaha, at large, the Church of America, uh, the church in China and in Africa and in other parts uh, of the world. 
When God plans to send forth reformation, He stirs up in the desire, uh, desires of the people that the church would be reformed, that the church would become a pure and holy bride. God develops His love in the bride of Jesus Christ. Fourth question is, do you join in corporate prayer? And I'm not going to even bother asking if you long to pray. <laughs> Just are you in the place where that longing can be stirred up by God? Are you in corporate prayer? Fifth question is, do you hunger and thirst for the pure milk of the word? First Peter 2 verse 2 says, that's a sign that you're truly born again. Do you have a hunger for the pure milk of the word? And as an older person, it's a sign of health. But in the young one, it's a sign that new life has come. And then lastly, do you value the leadership of the church? Independency can lead to revivalism, but there is no way that um, it leads to reformation. May God bring reformation to the leadership of the church in this world, and may he work profoundly in our lives, this preparatory work, so that revival itself may come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the sovereign bestower of reformation and uh, revival. Revive our hearts, O God. Work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to even long to have the things that you have spoken in this chapter. And Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in this congregation as we seek to operate not by our fleshly means and our fleshly techniques, but, Father, as we seek to use the techniques that you have given in your word that may seem stupid in the eyes of the world, but yet the, uh, the foolishness of man uh, becomes really the wisdom of you. Father, I pray that your wisdom that you have given in your word we would not consider to be foolish, but we would follow it with whole hearts. Revive us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.